Welcome to CRE Success, the podcast, where we help people working in commercial real estate achieve their professional goals. Check us out online at CREsuccess.co forward slash podcast. And now here's your host, Darren Krakowiak. Hello, this is episode 10 of CRE Success, the podcast. We made it. Yes, I started this podcast to fill a gap I saw in the marketplace, a podcast all about success in commercial real estate. I hope that you've enjoyed the content that we've been able to bring you and that it's added some value to your career. As I mentioned on the last episode, we are going to produce another 10 episodes as part of this first season. So if you haven't already, make sure you hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast player so you keep on receiving the episodes episodes in your feed. Today, my guest is James Tyrrell. James is from Melbourne, but he has spent 25 years plying his trade as a leasing executive in Asia. It's a career that has seen him based in three countries, working for agencies and landlords, and as the head of his own consultancy. Over his career, he's risen to the top of JLL career as the head of that business from 2004 to 2008. He's been involved in one of the largest disposition transactions to occur in the past decade in Asia, and he's managed to smoothly transition from working for the previous landlord that he advised on that disposition to the new landlord for the past four years via his own consultancy, which provides specialist services to landlords. James Tyrrell, you'll hear, is very passionate about real estate, and he's a great case study in doing what it takes to arrive, thrive, and survive as a professional expat. My interview with James starts in 30 seconds. Your workplace is a place for collaboration, for communication, and inspiration. As experts in workplace, Unispace knows that no two businesses are the same, and the journey to creating your best and most productive space starts with you. Unispace's in-house strategy team provides workplace assessments. They use data to ensure your space is designed to enable maximum productivity and is a place your staff want to be, not just have to be. Visit unispace.com to reinvigorate your workplace. And now it's time for the interview on CRE Success, the podcast. James, welcome to CRE Success, the podcast. Thank you very much, Darren. Pleased to be, uh, pleased to be here today. Well, James, the first thing that we do at the top of each episode is we ask our guests to step into the virtual elevator and to give us their 20 to 30 second introduction of who they are, their elevator pitch. So James, who are you? I'm James Tyrrell. I'm an office leasing executive based in Seoul, South Korea, working, I basically own and operate a small consultancy company that represents institutional real estate owners here in the sole office market and at present uh, my team and I are working on the IFC sole project a half a million square meter mixed-use development with 350,000 square meters of office space across three towers and our current uh, owner and client that we report to is Brookfield Asset Management. So just to put that in perspective for some of our listeners for example in Melbourne the Melbourne CBD office market has around five million square meters. So the project that you're working on is almost 10% of the size of the Melbourne office market. That's right. And it's, it is the largest office uh, project in uh, Seoul and therefore Korea. We have some tall buildings here, but this uh, is the largest because it's three towers. Um, but there is a very large development opening next door as well in the coming months. So we, we have a new competitor that we'll be competing with uh, in the near future. It's all right, James. I don't expect you to promote the competitor next door. So we'll just gloss over <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's go back to the start. How did you get started in commercial real estate? Yeah, so I started back in the mid-80s um, at RMIT. So I went to university after I finished high school. 
and was at the RMIT doing the Bachelor of Business in Property, which is quite a well-known degree now, but it was very much at its infancy at the time. There was the valuation degree or diploma prior to that. But I went into that degree with some interest in, in real estate and property, and that progressed into the third year of the degree. I was able to be virtually job-placed three days a week, which I did as a, a in a building management, property management role with AMP, the big, big life insurance company. Stayed with them for a year and then felt a sort of a pull towards the agency and marketing side of the business and was able to get a job at JLW, as it was, as, as it was called in those days, and worked at JLW from 1988 to 1995, primarily in office leasing, a little bit of sales as well, but mainly with office leasing. And that's, that was a great grounding, a great uh, starting point for my career. And that sort of then took a turn when I, uh, the next part of my adventure was, was coming to Asia. You find yourself in Seoul now, but I understand there was a couple of countries in between you leaving Melbourne and getting to Korea. So tell us about that journey. Yeah, it was, it was pretty interesting. Mid-90s, uh, the off, office market in Melbourne was hit pretty hard in the early 90s. There was an actual recession in the early 90s. So it was probably a, a slightly saturated market in terms of companies, consultants. So I was looking for something new and Asia was on the rise. You know, Thailand, Indonesia, Singapore, Hong Kong, they, uh, Malaysia, they were all emerging markets at that time. And so I actually just went on, on holidays at one point in the, the mid-90s and sort of door-knocked a few companies, including uh, JLW, and, and had a round of interviews that ended up with me taking a position with JLW in Jakarta, Indonesia. So that, so that was really the first stepping stone, and that was in late 95. And I did two and a half years there in a landlord uh, sort of driven market, working in agency and marketing. And then we had the financial, Asia financial crisis of 98, which then impacted everyone working in, in that market. But I was able to pivot to a landlord, uh, landlord developer called Mulia Group, who was quite a well-known company in Indonesia. They owned the big hotel in Bali, a flagship hotel in Jakarta, but they had also had an office portfolio. And so I worked as a portfolio leasing director for them for a few years. And that, that rounded me out for about five years in Indonesia. Uh, and then, then the next opportunity came. Interesting that you ended up at JLW, as JLL was called back then, after working for them in Melbourne, but it wasn't any of the introductions or links from your Melbourne colleagues that got you the job in Indonesia. It was, it was basically uh, turning up. So, so one thing I would say to some of the listeners and people that might be interested to, to look at opportunities in Asia in the future, back in the 90s, it was uh, get on the telephone. We, we didn't even have email then. It was uh, get on the telephone and, and, and then get on an airplane. And so I actually did fly into Singapore, Hong Kong, Thailand, and Jakarta, and KL. I did sort of five cities over a couple of weeks and door knocked a whole range of companies. And obviously there was a reference point there with JLW anyway, but it was really turning up and speaking to people face to face and expressing interest that led to my uh, employment. The days of transfers and moving people around, it wasn't really that common back then. The countries were quite separate. So there was certainly a lot of personal drive and ambition that was able to open some doors and, and that led to my first opportunity with JLW in Jakarta where, where they were a market leader and, a, and quite, a, 
quite a big practice back at the time. So after Indonesia, I think I, you went to Hong Kong for a short period back with JLL? Yeah. So, so when look, I worked for the developer and it was a good role, uh, but the market was extremely flat after the Asia financial crisis in Jakarta. You know, the rupiah had been dramatic, uh, dramatically impacted against the US dollar. I was working for a developer who was um, receiving rents in US dollars. It, it was all pretty challenging. And so I've always found in my career, some of these recessions and, and sort of these little circuit breakers in your career, that created a want to get out of Indonesia and move to the next adventure. And of course, I kept in touch with JLL and they said, come up to Hong Kong. We're going to launch South Korea in the next 12 months. Come here first, set up there, and then we'll forge ahead and open the business in South Korea. So I did that in 2000, uh, moved to Hong Kong, just lived out of a hotel. Again, I, I, I was pretty nimble. I moved with a, with a suitcase. So uh, it, was, it was all quite easy to sort of pull, pull, it, pull it all through because I was just by myself. I uh, didn't have a family or anything like that to worry about. So it was, it was, it was a good move. Went to Hong Kong and, and then we uh, set our sights on establishing a, a fully uh, operational firm in Seoul, South Korea. Right. So you eventually became the country head of JLL Korea, correct? That's correct. So look, I went in there virtually as the, the parachuted in first, started employing people, very much a startup environment in those first few years of 2001, 2002, 2003. And then uh, we built a, a platform uh, with some more experienced management uh, from the JLL group. And then in, in 2004, I became the country manager, managing director of, of that office and drove uh, all the business lines for about five years. You've been in Korea now for 20 years. And that's correct. Some of the listeners may know I spent 11 years in Korea and I can remember when I would tell people I've been in Korea for 10 or 11 years, they'd look at me like I was you know, not crazy, but like I was a real survivor, but you <laughs> survived for 20 years in Korea. Yes, I have. And I, I sort of just thought about the, the, the podcast today and why were some of the reasons I stayed so long. But I, I look back through those years, every couple of years, just big opportunities came up. And so uh, getting to Seoul, starting it virtually starting a leasing business, a tenant rep business, a sales business, a property management business. It was all without the rule book. We just sort of went at it at a, at a million miles an hour. That was a very exciting period. It felt like working for a startup through those first three or four years. Then the opportunity for country management came into it. So, of course, I was going to give that my, my best shot. I did that. And then in the second decade, we started to have some sort of international grade office projects uh, come out of the ground here in Seoul. And in 2009, I, after leaving JLL, I virtually had what I call my half time. I, I took a year off after being in Asia since 95 to 09. It was already 14 years. I took a year off. It was 10, 10 or 11 months, traveled the world, uh, met my now wife. Uh, and really, at that, that, that half time period really allowed me to reset and then set my mind to, to the next round of opportunities. And that was a, uh, an opportunity with AIG Global Real Estate, who were the developer uh, on behalf of a, of a real estate fund for the IFC Seoul and, and got in on the ground floor with them when, when the project was a hole in the ground. And that opportunity then went for six years. Tell me about the, the role that you've got now. I know there's a new owner in place, but tell me about what you do with the IFC Seoul project. So we took uh, IFC Seoul under the AIG Global Real Estate banner. We took it from a complete uh, hole in the ground through a whole pre-leasing phase through to an opening phase. 
uh, through 2011, through 2012, then opened the tallest tower in 2015. So it was all hands on deck with my team, working with the various brokers in the market like JLL, Savills, Cushman and Wakefield, CBRE, and all the various firms to take that first chunk out of the vacancy and being 350,000 square metres and no ownership uh, occupancy in the project and remembering big groups like Samsung, LG, Hyundai, POSCO, SK, all the big Korean conglomerates, they normally have their own buildings. So we had to set about a huge leasing campaign in a office district that also competes with two other office districts. So it was essentially, you know, you have your St Kilda Road, your Docklands and your Melbourne CBD or your Sydney and your North Sydney and your Chatswood, we, we were sort of one of those districts and it wasn't the central CBD, it was one of the other districts. So we had a lot of work to do, a lot of heavy lifting to, to get the space leased. And that was all set up on the basis of AIG then exiting the asset. Uh, and so that was another learning along the way in that I got to work with AIG and their appointed broker out of New York, uh, Eastfield Secured, to work on the whole exit exit strategy and the exit of the asset, which was just something I'd never done before. So we worked through that and then Brookfield eventually bought the asset at the end of 2016. And then the building was only 60 to 65% leased across the three towers. So then I had to uh, reset again with my team. Uh, we segued uh, over to Brookfield to represent their interests. And we're, we're now got, got the buildings uh, cumulatively occupied in the, the mid 90% mark. So you're a leasing executive by trade and you've worked in an agency, but now working for a landlord for the past decade. So what's the difference between those two roles when it comes to applying the, the skills of being a leasing agent? Yes, I, I've enjoyed both. I, I was just tabbing up the years uh, before the call and I did four, I've done 14 years on the landlord side and 19 uh, as a broker or an agent, all focused on you know, getting getting space leased and getting assets um, ready for sale or, or, or optimize, uh, asset optimization. So I found on the brokerage side, and this, this is true to this day, I'm sure, even though I haven't worked in it for 10 years, it's a lot of hustle, hustle, a lot of targets, a lot of fees to be chased, a lot of a broad range of clients, but very much living in the moment, quarter by quarter, I, I found more and more once JLL became a public company in 1997. So it was always quarterly results, monthly results. It was, it was pretty high intensity. Now as a as sort of working on an owner's behalf, we're much more into outcomes, planning, uh, looking at the valuation, a real focus on optimizing the asset, improving occupancy and and really being a little bit more strategic. You know, We have over 220 office tenants across the three towers, the tallest tower being 55 stories high. There's always something to do. So it's all about asset optimization. Now a little bit more strategic. Before that, it was it was go, go, go. Okay. So tell me about the leadership skills that are required to run a business like JLL Korea versus those that are required to be in charge of a dedicated leasing team that's focused exclusively on one project. I imagine there's some, some key differences. Ab- absolutely. Um, I found leadership of a, of a full firm, and again, that was an emerging firm. It wasn't. It was quite a young company in, in terms of the South Korean office market and the, and the industrial market and the retail market. That was extremely challenging, and I, I went at it head first. You just got to dive in and, and and do the best you can. And I tried as hard as I could, and I look. I found in in ref, on reflection, 
probably would have done a whole lot of things a lot differently. But as you get older, you mature more and, and you learn, you, you, you have learnings and, and takeaways from lots of situations. So I think that that five years of, well, firstly, the startup period and the five years of, of running that company just did everything possible to try and produce results. And, you know, we, we, we did reasonably well, but it was just always a very, very challenging role I found. Now it's with a smaller team, we have very much our eye on the prize. We know what we need to do. We know we have to get the asset as close to 100% occupied on long leases to credit tenants. When we deal with all the renewals, we deal with the downsizing, upsizing. So it's just the playing field is different in that now there's probably less complication uh, there's less uh, variables because there's a smaller amount of headcount. Whereas when I was leading a full service firm with six or seven service lines, I think I was trying to be something to everyone. Uh, and if I, if I did that role again at my age now, I think I'd be a little bit more strategic in the role, less, um, less sort of taking it virtually day by day as we did back in, back in the day. Look at your team now. You're, you've had an incredibly stable team. Two of the three people who work with you have been with you every day for a decade. And I know that they're very capable and they probably get offers to leave from time to time and join other firms. So how is it that you have kept your team loyal and engaged on the task at hand? I think that's a, a very good question because you and I have both worked here and we've seen people gravitate from, from agencies to asset managers or developers. I, I found I never changed my global outlook or even though I live in South Korea and I live and work here, my wife is Korean, I'm, I'm still an international citizen. So I've gone about running this project how I would run it if it was in another city in in the world and so that meant you know things like work-life balance and and not being top-down but being more collaborative and sitting down with the team and working through problems on deals and proposals and and lease negotiations it was just it's how I would have done it if I was in Melbourne or, or if I was in Hong Kong whereas the Korean corporate world is very uh, top-down very sort of brutal in some ways and so I deliberately went my own path and instead of trying to clone myself into uh, a, a Korean management style so I think that resonated with the the team members third key team members been here for five years as well so mm. so I think that giving them autonomy giving them respect of work-life balance and giving them a lot of uh, responsibilities in handling their own deals. Um, I really get involved with just the major key tenants and they let them uh, run their programs uh, day to day, week to week, month to month. And I think that resonated with them. Whereas if they joined a large Korean organization, you become another soldier in, in a Korean army. And I, that, that doesn't suit, suit those individuals. Also, you've been working on this project for 10 years, so I guess you know the project inside out, but I'm wondering how do you keep things fresh in terms of your approach to the job and how you present the property to prospective tenants? So I, I find several things. There's always something to do. So there's key renewals. We have over 200 office tenants. There's de-risking the property as best we can for our clients, making sure that we're ahead of the curve. If renewals are coming up that have a bit of risk with new supply coming into the market, we start early. Still love showing space, even if it's second time round. I've, I've done several deals with companies in Korea where I did a move 15 years ago for them, and I did a move for them three years ago. So I've done, 
I've done their office twice for them in, in, in my time here. So I find there's always something to do. We're always looking to be the most professional operator in the market. And I, I do benchmark the Australian property market very closely for best practice and, and, and learnings. So when I'm in Sydney and Melbourne, I'm always visiting all the class A properties in those markets. And so we've, you know, we've put a flex space model into, into play here at our property. We've done end of trip with uh, with a health it's a health club but it's really sort of like an end of trip facility that you would see in trophy buildings in melbourne sydney we did a convention space a year ago we're even leasing now some built out tenancies just for something different so always trying to benchmark best practice and i use australia as my as my sort of bedrock and then try and bring that best practice to south korea which is still you could argue an emerging market. It's the multinationals love coming to our project because we try and hit all those touch points that they need in, in their office as, as the years go by. So James, I'd like to move on now to talk about you in your experience in Korea and how it is that you think you have survived and thrived in the market. So what are the specific skills that are required to, to be a long-term survivor in a market like Korea? It has to be underlying drive. I think that was what got me to Indonesia and then then to Korea. And there's got to be that level of passion for, for, for real estate and passion for working with people and working for clients. And I, I, even though I'm on the landlord side, I'm still essentially a consultant working for a client. It's just one large client that, that we have to, to perform our duties for. So that, that whole layer of showing space, selling, selling space, negotiating uh, deals, I've always enjoyed that. So I think that drive and tenacity is, is key and I've been able to, to, to hold on to that. And two is resilience. Got to tough it out sometimes. It's a, it's a foreign city. Uh, it's not foreign to me now, but it's still foreign language and uh, different business customs. So I've been able to sort of adapt, I think, reasonably well in that respect. So I, I'd say I'm a pretty adaptable sort of personality. And I've found as the years have gone on, I'm much more calm, a little bit more calm, a little bit more strategic. And I think that's, that's served me very, very well. And I suppose the final point for anyone that's listening that's interested to move to Asia, you can bring lots of best practice from places like Australia, but you, you still have to blend in. You can't completely expect the domestic market in, in the city that you've moved to, to completely adhere to all your thought processes or, or way of going about things. So there really is an element of flexibility in how you tackle problems that, that's extremely important in, in surviving. And you and I both have seen many, many people come and go uh, over the years that haven't had that ability to adapt. What's one thing that you've done that helps you be successful in terms of something that you've focused on and worked at to be the best that you can be? Oh, I've got a, a, a great sort of grounding from my time in Melbourne before I came to Asia. And there was two key parts to that. There was working at JLL, which was JLW back then, you worked with some of the best people in the business uh, in the late 80s and early 90s because, you know, they were, they were number one. Uh, and, and so there was just a lot of that positive energy, I think, just rubbed off on me, which I've been able to take that tenacity with me on my travels. The other thing that I thought was very important, I picked up from university, we had a visiting professor from Canada that once said, you've got to be niche. You know, there's going to be lots of talented people selling buildings, leasing space. Uh, and Melbourne, as you know, it's a very, very professional uh, office environment, industrial environment, logistics. So I just thought maybe if I step outside that arena and go to somewhere where I'm a much more niche player where I can represent multinational business interests 
in a in a very foreign country, Korea is still like Japan, a very sort of uh, strong uh, domestic character. That has been something I think I've been able to use to project my career in the right direction and and, and sort of stay uh, at the top of my game. So being niche and and picking your target, I think has served me very well over over the years. Well, James, I know you're a big Hawks fan. And in the time that you I've known you. There's been four premierships. People from Melbourne who know about AFL will know what I'm talking about. Has the Hawks' success ever made you think twice about coming back home and, and, and giving it all up to come back to Melbourne? <laughs> very, very uh, pertinent question, given we have football on every night of the week. So uh, when I first moved to Asia, I really missed footy. And there was no cable TV. There was no Fox footy. There was no, none of the the gadgetry that we have today. So I, I really sort of missed it uh, for those first sort of five, 10 years. Now, as you know, we're, we're well set up from a technology standpoint. So I, I know just about as much as uh, about AFL as anyone. So I, I didn't get to go to the games. I'm still a member of the football club. Followed them very passionately every week always go and see a game when I'm in Melbourne. I've uh, also stopped by Sydney a few times and seen games. But this is where the, my bread and butter is still uh, at the present time. So I have to just enjoy uh, uh, tuning in, as I will probably tonight. I think there's a game on tonight as well. I guess the, uh, the funny thing is right now, even if you live in Melbourne, you couldn't go and see a game anyway. Exactly. So uh, a crazy season, but yeah, still, still love, the, love the footy and technology has um, certainly reduced the divide that I experienced when I first moved, uh, moved overseas. Very good. Well, James, it's been great talking to you. I want to say thank you so much for sharing your insights about what it takes to succeed in a market like Korea. And thanks for being here on CRE Success, the podcast. My pleasure, Darren. It's been great. Thanks. Thanks very much. For more information about our guest, visit cresuccess.co forward slash podcast. And now a final thought from Darren Krakowiak. Thank you once again, James, for taking part in the show. We are currently beginning production on a further 10 episodes for season one, which will take us through to the end of 2020. I will also produce a couple of bonus episodes as a bit of a bumper between this first batch of 10 episodes and the next batch of 10 episodes, where we'll be recapping some of the best answers that we've heard so far in season one, and also to preview what we've got coming up for the rest of season one. Please don't forget to visit our website to find out more about C. CRE success and also to claim your free ebook, The Five P's of Commercial Real Estate Success. I really noticed throughout this season that whenever I ask the question of our guests, what does it take to succeed in commercial real estate? A lot of the five P's came up. Passion, persistence, positive thinking, preparation, and professionalism. This is not just another generic ebook on success, by the way. This is specific to commercial real estate and based on my experience and observations in the industry over the past two decades. The point to get from this book is that you do not have to change who you are to succeed in commercial real estate. All that matters is what you do. In just 12 pages, you will learn how to utilize your existing skills to prioritize your efforts and achieve the success that you are looking for. To download the ebook, just visit our website and follow the prompts, cresuccess.co. That is the website, cresuccess.co. That's all for today, though. Thanks so much for listening, and I will speak to you soon.
Thanks for listening to CRE Success, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and be sure to leave us a five-star review. For more information about the show, just check the show notes on your podcast app or visit us online at cresuccess.co. If you're interested in the flexible workspace boom happening across Australia, Hub Australia is one of the best operators with seven beautiful sites in four capital cities. They offer premium workspaces with desks, offices and suites and partner with landlords and corporate customers to provide and produce high quality workspaces, making sure their members love coming to work. If you have a client or partner looking for their next workspace or business opportunity, email hello at hubaustralia.com or visit hubaustralia.com.